Uh, a word of advice to newer parents, try to avoid flights longer than four or five hours if your child is under two years old, right? Just wait. They're not gonna remember where you go. Just trust me, just wait, right? So we make it back to Texas, and the next day, we're back in Texas, I have hand, foot, mouth disease, so I can't see friends for a couple weeks. Now, you think it's over, right? You think I'm done. No, not yet. I'm not finished yet. Now, I'm thinking in the back of the head, okay, in service for you tomorrow, that boy, they're going to be like, oh, your introduction is way too long. It's not my fault. This is all God's doing, right? So, August, we get back to China without too much trouble. 15-hour flights again is not too bad. And within the week of arriving, I have food poisoning or some sort of stomach virus. This is not regular food poison. I have no idea what happened, right? I go to the doctor. He gives me medicine. He's confident. He's like, you're going to be fine within a day, most, at most two, right? It lasts eight days. Eight days of food poisoning. Could not eat. And my doctor was so shocked that he lasted this long, right? And it was so bad that I would wake up in the middle of the night with random cramps in places I never knew could cramp before, right? My ribs, hamstrings, whatever, like, I had no idea how to stretch out these cramps. I just lay there and be like, God, please make this go away. And finally, now I'm about to finish. A few weeks ago in September, classes have started. And just a random morning, we're about to take Kane into the school, school bus. I'm about to head out to work. And my wife accidentally kicks the kid's playmat. She fractures her toe. No, she didn't block a car from hitting our kids, which is the joke story I like to tell my friends. She kicked a playmat that is used to keep kids from getting hurt when they fall, and she fractures her toe. Now I know that my family is not alone in having a hard year or even years. Everyone here today comes with their own burdens and their own baggage. And in our text today, we will be looking at how Jesus responds to those that are feeling weighed down or overwhelmed by life's struggles. So our text today comes from Luke 18, 31 to 44. You can turn to it in your bulletin, open your Bibles and follow along. Luke chapter 18, 31 to 43, sorry, 31 to 43. Let's begin. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of God. So Luke 18, just a little background, is an interesting chapter. Right? In this section, or in, not just in this section, but overall, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, where, spoiler alert, Jesus will ultimately be arrested and die on the cross. Don't know that yet. 
as he's making a pilgrimage, he's bombarded by huge crowds of people. Right? Many have heard of his miracles. Some want to hear his teachings. Others were curious as to who Jesus was. What was his identity? Is he the prophesied Messiah? And even opponents and critics would be following him to try to challenge him or confront him. And just in general, there were already large crowds of people because Passover was a major event where devout Jews in all of the regions would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate. So in the summer, Chris Morgan, uh, a couple months ago, preached on, the verse, on verses 15 to 30, where Jesus encounters children that were being brought to him, and he teaches on entering the kingdom of God like a child. And then an encounter with a rich young ruler, where Jesus calls him to give up his worldly attachments to completely follow him which he chooses, the rich young ruler chooses not to. And now today we get to the story of the blind beggar. Right? The story is also written in, in, in Mark 10 and Matthew 20. But Luke, unlike Mark and Matthew, um, he leaves out something in between. He leaves out James and John seeking to be seated next to Jesus when he finally brings his kingdom. And I think Luke's purpose in this is to he, he sequentially wants you to really contrast all the people that are mentioned in this section, from the children, the rich young ruler, to the beggar, to Zacchaeus, which you will see in chapter 19, the tax collector. He, he, he wants us, he's showing all of these people to really contrast their hearts of how they respond when they encounter Jesus. Right? So our main idea today, our main idea is, Jesus is the only source of mercy and hope. Again, Jesus is the only source of mercy and hope. Jesus is the only source of mercy and hope. And our three points for today are, the first, the mercy of blindness, point number one. Point number two, the mercy of desperate faith. The mercy of desperate faith. And point number three, the hope of salvation. And so for our three points, um, they will be a section in the verses, but also I want to focus in on specific people in each of the sections. So for the first point, the mercy of blindness, we're going to be looking at specifically the disciples. The mercy of desperate faith, we're going to focus in on the blind beggar. And the hope of salvation, we'll be looking at Jesus. So for our first point, verses 31 to 34, the mercy of blindness, Jesus is addressing the disciples specifically. So there are crowds around him. And he foretells his death a third time. And if you like, on your own, you can go and read um, the first two times where he foretells his death in Luke chapter 9. But this third time and last time, he specifically goes into horrific detail, stating that he will first be delivered over or betrayed to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamed, spit upon, flogged. Then he will die. And after the third day, he will rise again. Yet in verse 34, we see that Luke states very clearly that they, the disciples, understood none of these things. And you may be thinking, how is it possible that they could not understand? I mean, Jesus is being fairly explicit here, right? He's saying pretty clearly what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to him. But, but not only that, we have to remember that this is not the first time he said it. This is the third time that Jesus has foretold his death 
And let's be real, guys. You guys have been following him for almost three years now. You should be pretty clear what he's, what he's about to do. Well, this would not be the end of the disciples' lack of understanding. In fact, in less than a week, Jesus will accomplish what he has foretold. We'll die on the cross. We'll rise again. And the disciples, the disciples will witness his death. They will witness his resurrection. And afterwards, after he's come back, Jesus will spend 40 days with them before he ascends into heaven. They will witness all of this. And even after all this, they still don't comprehend. They are still blind to Jesus' purposes. And Acts 1 says, right before Jesus ascends, the disciples ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now they're still expecting Jesus is about to go into heaven. He's about to ascend. And they're still expecting Jesus to bring about a political and national kingdom. Political and national kingdom. Right? <clears throat> so, they're, they're probably even more confident that Jesus can now do this now. He can now bring about political and national change. Now that they know he can't die, right? I mean, we have zombie Jesus by our side now. <laughs> Right? No, how could they have been so blind? How could they have been so blind? Now in Mark 9, 43, the second time Jesus foretells his death, sorry, Luke 9, 43, Mark, Luke states that they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And then here again, in verse 34, it states, this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now we have to ask, why? Why would Jesus bother to tell the disciples this fact, right? If he was going to hide it from them. Why would he bother to tell them if he was going to hide it from them? Well, one conclusion that we can draw is that the disciples are only meant to understand what Jesus' purpose is after the facts <coughs> have taken place, right? God has decided that their spiritual sight was not going to be given instantaneously. Right? Their spiritual sight was not going to be given instantaneously, but it was going to be given in stages. And it wasn't until the disciples were given the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 that they fully grasped Jesus' teachings. That he was here to bring out about a spiritual revival, not a political nation that the Israelites have been hoping for for hundreds of years. This deliberate act of spiritual blindness was Jesus' mercy to the disciples. Could you imagine what the disciples would have done if Jesus revealed the significance of dying on the cross and what it entailed for the Gospels? In Mark 8, where he said to the disciples, if, you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save him. Well, we already know how the disciples respond when their faith is tested at this moment. When Jesus is arrested, what do the disciples do? They run away. They run away. And when Jesus, or when Peter is asked, do you know, I think that guy was with Jesus. I think he knows him. I think he's one of his followers. What does Peter do? He denies him not once, but three times. I don't know this guy. I've never seen him before. If Christ had not blinded them at the time, 
at this time, would they have had the faith to continue in following Jesus, or would they have given up and just left them? Church, there are many mysteries in our lives and in this world that will never be revealed or resolved until we are in heaven. Just as Jesus blinded the disciples in this moment and gives them spiritual sight in stages, one day at a time. There are times in your life when you will say, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? And you may be blinded to the answers. And the only thing that you can do is to continue to trust and follow after him, knowing that he is faithful. The only thing you can do is to trust and follow after him, knowing that he is faithful. You may never receive the answers in this lifetime. So we continue to our second point, the mercy of desperate faith. The mercy of desperate faith. And in verse 35, as Jesus continues his journey to Jerusalem, he comes upon a blind man who is begging by the roadside. In other, in other Gospels, we know that there are actually two blind men, and the man that is written about in Luke is Bartimaeus, but we don't know much else about him. We don't know if he's been born blind or if he came blind at some point. But we do know that this is a horrible affliction to be burdened with. I was talking with Lena last night, and I asked her, if you had to rank one of the five senses that you had to lose, right? five senses, hope you all know them, um, and you had to rank it, which one would be the worst to lose to least worst to lose? For me personally, I would rank sight as the worst. Right? To wake up every day and knowing nothing but blackness. You wake up every day and know nothing but blackness. And we can imagine that he's already probably done everything possible to find a, a cure for his condition. He's probably gone to the temple to pray, seek help, right? He's maybe even tried out other gods, idols, sorcerers, healers, but none of them have worked. So instead, every day he goes by the roadside, holding out his cup or his hand, and hope that someone would give him alms as he would not be able to earn a living. All he could do to survive was to beg. And then this day, he heard footsteps. Not the usual steady stream of footsteps. Today, it sounded like a herd of galloping horses right, coming closer to him. And so we asked somebody, someone next to him, what's going on? They say, Bartimaeus, Jesus of Nazareth, is passing by. And notice he doesn't ask, Jesus who? Who's that? Mm -hmm. right? Remember, this is, a near, this is near the end of Jesus' time on earth. This entire region would have heard of the news of Jesus, who was giving hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, cleansing those with leprosy, and even raising people from the dead. And you can imagine as Bartimaeus heard these stories, hearing one by one by one another miracle Jesus is performing, right? in his darkness, he would probably dream that, that someday Jesus of Nazareth would pass this way. And the only hope this man had on earth to restore his sight rested on Jesus, rested in Jesus of Nazareth. He knew that there was nothing else that could be done. He's probably he's already tried everything else. 
And so on this day, when he hears this thundering crowd, and someone whispers to him, It's Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus. Jesus of Nazareth is passing this way. This was the moment. All the stories and miracles he had heard Jesus perform, and every time he listened, he hoped for this one opportunity. And so he cried out, like others have cried out before him, previously the, the ten lepers. He yelled and he screamed, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his screams upset the people who went before him. They were, they, he was ruining the ambiance of the moment. And those around him started saying, shh, quiet, bro, be quiet, you're making a scene, hush. Right? But instead, he cried out even louder and all the more desperate, and I won't scream again, but, <laughs> son of David, have mercy on me. He knew that this was his only chance. He had no guarantee that Jesus would ever pass this way again. This was his one opportunity. And two things we need to note about his cry. The first, he calls Jesus son of David, not Jesus of Nazareth, not rabbi or teacher, but the messianic title, son of David. Now this shows that Bartimaeus gives, is giving recognition to Jesus' authority, that he believed that Jesus had come to fulfill the promises of David, and he had faith that Jesus had the authority and compassion to heal him. He recognizes by giving him this title, Jesus, son of David. And the second thing we need to know is that Bartimaeus is not saying, Jesus, please come heal my sight. Right? He's saying, He's crying out, have mercy on me. Not Jesus, come heal me. Jesus, help me. No, he's saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And yes, this is a cry of desperation, of hopelessness, an appeal for compassion. But it's also a cry of restoration. To seek mercy is to recognize with humility that he had a need for restoration, that somehow he was broken. Alistair, I love this quote by Alistair Begg, who says, you will never know Jesus Christ as a reality in your life until you know him as a necessity. You will never know Jesus Christ as a reality in your life until you know him as a necessity. Brothers and sisters, until you are made aware of your blindness, you will never call out to ask to see or more directly, until you see the sin from which you need to be saved, you will never call out for a Savior. And those of us in here that, when you're asked, how are you doing? Your default answer is, most of the time, oh, I'm fine, knowing that you are far from it. Or others who, no matter what life hits you with, just, you just keep taking it upon your shoulders and bearing that burden, saying, oh, just another thing I need to problem solve and, and get through. You keep pushing and grinding, thinking as long as, as you put enough effort in, it's going to be okay. Well, I'm going to tell you very honestly, it won't be okay. You are not strong enough to take on the afflictions and struggles of this world with your own strength. Nor does Jesus want you to. He 
doesn't want you to. No, he wants you to reach out your arms and to cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy. When we get to our final point, the hope of salvation. We go from our blind man now to Jesus. Before we do that, just a quick side note. I couldn't stop chuckling when I was imagining this scene, right? He's cried out, people have shushed him, right? And, and, and Jesus is still continuing to call out to, to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And next to him is probably some person going, hey guy, like we're trying to listen to Jesus teach. You, you need to be quiet, right? You need to be quiet. You're ruining the moment here. How about you go somewhere else? You go somewhere else. And then suddenly the crowd stops. And he's like, see, see what you did? See what you did? You've made trouble, right? Hurry, let's take him away. Let's take him away. Oh, oh, hold on a moment. No, don't take him away. Oh, oh, actually, you want me to bring him to Jesus, right? And how embarrassed that that guy must have felt, right? Uh, I meant actually away from all these people rebuking you. Let's take you away from all these people rebuking you. Take you to Jesus, right? Sorry, but inshallah, right? Um, look. No, we, it's just a real side note here. As a church, so this is for the brothers and sisters, sometimes we can become a hindrance to those who are seeking Jesus. Sometimes we can become a hindrance to those who are seeking Jesus. So those are, sometimes we feel like, oh, it's too much. Right? They're taking too much of my time, too much of my energy. Don't they know I have all these other things going on? I have work, I have family, I have all these struggles that I'm going through. I don't have time to focus on just you, right? Or sometimes, to other brothers and sisters, we, see, we feel like the way they're behaving is not worthy of Jesus, worthy of the gospel, and we just feel like we want to rebuke them. No, church, let's not be a hindrance to those who are coming to Jesus. Let's, let's take them and point them to Christ. All right, so continuing... Jesus is on a mission to Jerusalem, and only he knows the severity and grimness of what's about to take place. Now, other than resting or praying, he's not stopping for anything, right? He's in mission mode. Yet, in this moment, when he hears this specific cry, he hears the cry of Bartimaeus. And remember, Bartimaeus most likely isn't the only one calling out to him. There are probably hundreds of others calling out to him, right? But for some reason, this specific cry, he stops. And he calls out, and he says, bring that man to me. And, and this, is, this is not an instantaneous thing. Remember, he's blind. There are huge crowds of people. They have, it takes some time. He has to wait there for Bartimaeus to be brought to him. Okay? But when he finally is, Bartimaeus is brought before Jesus, he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And remember, not only is Jesus in a hurry, right? And he could have just done this very efficiently, just touched him and say, yes, you're, you're healed. Go on your way. Right? Instead, he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Already having a pretty good idea of what exactly Bartimaeus wants. So why? Why does Jesus ask this question? Knowing what he's going to say and, make, and seemingly be his needs are very obvious to Jesus. Well, because Jesus still wants him to share what his needs are. 
He wants him to share his needs as an expression of trust and reliance on him. He wants him to share his needs as an expression of trust and reliance on him. This is a question. This question, what do you want me to do for you, is a question that God has never stopped asking from when he created Adam and Eve to now. He's still asking that question to you today. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? He asked this so that we can stop trusting in ourselves, stop trusting in our families, our friends, our degrees, our resumes, our social status, our spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, or even our children. He asked this because he wants us to rely solely on him. James chapter 4, verse 2 to 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask. And, you, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now we see Barnabas' response to Jesus is, Lord, let me recover my sight. Lord, let me recover my sight. And before we get to how Jesus responds to him, if you'll allow me another small aside, it, it takes a lot of discernment to under, understand the difference between felt needs and real needs. It takes a lot of discernment to understand the difference between felt needs, needs that we feel that we have, and, and real needs. Now, when I went back to the States this summer, I spoke with a lot of people about going to church. You know, why aren't you going to church? Or why don't you check out a church? <clears throat> and some I spoke to who haven't committed to a church or stopped going to church usually respond with, well, I haven't really found a church that fits my needs. I want a church that's ethnically diverse, right? that it adheres to or stays away from political ideologies. Or I want to go somewhere I can be entertained that is more culturally relevant sermons, right? or more lively music. Somewhere that focuses on on issues like social justice, missions, or has an amazing and more robust children's ministry. What I never heard is, I haven't found a church that preaches the word of God. I did not hear anyone say, I haven't found a good church that rightly preaches the word of God. I haven't found a church where my soul can be fed. Where my family and I can be prepared for eternal life with Jesus Christ. Church, there is a distinction between felt needs and real needs. Sometimes a felt need can be a real need, but it may not be your deepest need. It may seem that Bartimaeus felt what he needed more than anything else was his sight. And that was something very natural. But what if he got his sight and then he died and he went to hell? Or like many who have already been healed by Jesus, their affliction is restored. But they miss the greater need of spiritual restoration. Our greatest need forever and always will be to know who God is and to be reconciled to Him. Our greatest need will forever and always be to know who God is and to be reconciled to Him. It doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't ask Him for other needs. But make sure your heart isn't like the rich young ruler 
where you've been so attached to your earthly needs that you feel they outweigh your real need of being covered by the righteousness of Jesus. We move on to Jesus' response to Bartimaeus. He says, Bartimaeus, God says that. He says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. On the surface, this statement makes it seem like Jesus is saying, because of your faith, you have received your sight. Right? It's, it's, it kind of sounds that way, right? Your trust in me has restored your vision. Right? That, that seems like what Jesus is saying. And that is one possible interpretation. Right? That is one possible interpretation. But I think a better interpretation of what Jesus is saying, right, when he says, Bartimaeus, or, like, he says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well, is that Jesus is saying, right, Bart, Bartimaeus, I'm going to give you more than just sight. I'm going to give you myself. I think a better interpretation is that Jesus gave Bartimaeus more than just sight, but he also gave him himself. I believe the second interpretation fits this better because of how Bartimaeus responds. In verse 43, says, and immediately he recovered his sight. He instantly receives it. Right? It's not taking some time. He instantly receives his sight. This affliction that he's, he's been suffering for who knows how long the number one defining trait of his life to this point, we cannot even begin to fathom how much he's been longing to have his sight restored. And when it is, he doesn't just thank Jesus and walk away, right? He doesn't thank Jesus and be like, now I can finally go see Jericho, right? I can go observe nature, go climb a mountain and, and see creation, right? Or like, oh, I can finally go see what people look like. What does a beautiful woman look like? Right? No, the darkness that has defined his entire life is gone. And his eyes are flooded with life and colors. And the rest of 42 states that Bartimaeus followed him, glorifying God. He receives his sight, and he immediately follows Jesus, glorifying God. This is why I feel like it's not just about his sight being restored, but Jesus gives him himself, his spiritual restoration, so that Bartimaeus sees more than just what's in front of him. He sees the needs of his heart, and he chooses immediately at that point to follow Jesus and to glorify God. And we know what's going to happen soon to Jesus thereafter. Right? At least in human terms, it's not a happy ending. In spiritual terms, it is, but not in human terms. Now I want to conclude with this question. If Jesus came into this room now and he walked up to you and he asked, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? How would you respond? What would you ask for? What is the deepest desire <coughs> of your heart. Maybe you're thinking, Lord, I'm struggling with my job. I'm struggling with this boss, this direct report that's just been on my back for so long now. Or I need a job where I get more 
I have better wellness. I won't be so stressed or so, so anxious where I get to spend time traveling or spending more time with my family. You may be thinking, Lord, my, my relationship is in trouble. My marriage is in trouble. I need to be healed in my relationship. Or, Lord, I've been suffering with physical or emotional affliction for so long. I've had this pain for so long. I've had this need in my heart for so long. Please, can you heal me? Oh Lord, I'm struggling to get by financially. Please provide me the financial security I need. And if you know anything, but if you know anything about Jesus, you would say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Give me the saving faith I need so that my soul can be healed. Take away the darkness of my soul so that I can stand before the Father covered in your righteousness. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you have not accepted him into your heart as your Savior, I challenge you to think of what your real needs might be, not your felt needs. Have you genuinely felt satisfied and joyful from your financial successes, your personal achievements, career achievements, your relationships with family, spouse, whomever, but yet you're still longing for more? You still feel like you want something more than what this world has to offer? Something more lasting, something more meaningful. Then I invite you to cry out to Jesus. Ask him to have mercy on you. And if you don't feel like you have enough knowledge of who Jesus is, then don't wait. Come speak to me. Come speak to any member of WSBC. And lastly, brothers and sisters of WSBC, if Jesus has given to you what you have needed the most, if Jesus has given to you the spiritual restoration that you've been longing for, that soul restoration, isn't the most sensible thing to do is to follow him and glorify God. If Jesus has given to you what you needed the most, isn't the most sensible thing to do is to follow him and glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you, Lord. Everyone here has many earthly distractions. Everyone here has various priorities that they wake up, their to-do list that they need to check off every single day. Everyone here has various trials and struggles and things that they're juggling, Lord. We all have these felt needs that we magnify, that we feel like if I can't take care of this one thing, it's all over. Nothing else will matter. But Father, we know this is not true. Father, we know that this life will end. This world will come to an end. And the only thing that will matter is when we stand 
before the gates, Father. We stand before your throne in judgment, Lord. You will simply ask, did you put your faith in me? Did you follow after me and glorify me? So, Father, we ask that our hearts can cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. Thank you, Lord. We pray this on your sons. Amen.